19th of July 2012, the Moot community at the Guild Church of St Mary Aldermary in the City of London, Charles Eisenstein gave this lecture to a packed audience exploring the theme of the gift economy, drawing on his book The Sacred Economics. Nice. Thanks, Mark, for that. Uh, yeah, so I, I will probably talk at least a little bit about economics. Um, but Mark was kind of getting at something that, that I think everybody feels when you look at the financial crisis. You have this feeling that it's really not about that. Part of that feeling is, is that it's almost like this feeling that, that the world is falling apart. A feeling that, that the crisis that we face today, in some sense, goes all the way to the bottom. Even the elites understand this when they talk about, in secret, on their financial websites, they, they call it extend and pretend, recognizing that none of their solutions can possibly reach deep enough. And I think that, that many of us are getting that understanding as well, that this crisis goes all the way to the bottom. And all the way to the bottom means that it includes all aspects of our being, what you would call the heart, uh, the spirit, the feelings, the embodiment, and not just this abstract realm of symbols that we call money. I mean, money is really abstract. It's physical reality today. At most, it's these slips of paper, which weigh hardly anything. Uh, and most of it is just bits and computers. It almost doesn't exist at all. So I want to, um, if you were here for a very comprehensive analytic talk about money systems, um, you're not going to get that much of that. Uh, but I will touch on that, and I will touch on, on all of the other levels uh, as well. To really make it simple, uh, I can say that all of this work is based on um, an understanding of the universe based on the gift. It's not just an economic, an approach to economics, it's also a cosmology. And it echoes ancient cultures' cosmology, uh, where they saw the universe as essentially operating on the principles of a gift. And this is something that, that we can all tap into. I don't, it's, that, it's that feeling of primal gratitude that you have when you're thirsty and you have a drink of water. And you realize that even if you did walk over to the tap and get the water yourself, you realize that you didn't earn the presence of water in this universe. There's a, we all have this underlying knowledge that that water was a gift. and that our breath is a gift, and that the ground beneath our feet is a gift. We didn't earn any of these things. 
that our lives are a gift. We didn't earn being nursed when we were babies and protected and taken care of and clothed and fed. We didn't earn having this beautiful planet that, that creates food, even if we don't really know how to make it happen. We don't ha really can't engineer food. Even today, we, just, we can insert different genes and things, but, but we don't know how to make food. We, don't, we didn't make the sun either. None of these things were earned. They all came as a gift. And that means that we are born into gratitude. Gratitude being the feeling, the knowledge of having received, and the desire to give in turn. And that's written very deeply into human nature. That's why if you, well, let me just say economics, generally speaking, economics denies that. And they say, no, 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 human nature really is about maximizing your self-interest, maximizing your utility. Uh, and it's based on biology, uh, which teaches or has taught until quite recently that we are driven by our genes to maximize reproductive self-interest. Okay, but I think we know better. One reason that, that we know better is that you could have a job that pays you really well, but if that job doesn't engage your gifts, you're gonna be very dissatisfied with that job. You're gonna feel like you're living somebody else's life the life that you are paid to live, but not your life. I've had those moments before when I was quite young. I was like, well, I remember actually a key moment when I was 28 years old, 27 maybe, I was living in Taiwan. I was a translator and business consultant back then, it was a former lifetime. And we were having a meeting. I was meeting with some people, executives in a software company, and they were discussing their uh, new product features and 3D sound and this, that, and the other thing. And I looked around the room and I was like, hold on. You mean you guys actually care about this? And your market share? Because I'm just pretending to care about it. Because you're paying me to. So I had a, f a few moments of gloating superiority, you know? Um, you know, I, yeah, you know, I get that and you don't, you know. Um, but, but then, the next feeling was terror. Because I thought, do I ever get to do something I care about for real? And I couldn't imagine anything, doing anything that I cared about for real that would pay me the same amount of money. And I began to think, well, for one, well, I couldn't do that job much longer, actually. Um, and that launched me on a very long journey to discover what it is that I do actually care about, because I've been so conditioned to doing things I didn't care about for the sake of an external reward. I mean, that starts in school, doesn't it? Where the external reward is grades, and you do things you don't actually care about to get good grades, and that conditions you for a life of doing things you don't care about. It's no coincidence. The school system was created by industrialists. I won't go into that story right now. So I wondered, so, right, so that launched this journey, and I also wondered, why should it be this way? Why should it be that the things I really care about, there's no money in those? 
the things that, the things that make my heart sing, there's no money in those. And the things I don't want to do very much, that's where the money is. The things that are destroying the planet, that's where the money is. Why should it be that way? Why shouldn't money instead be aligned with the gift? Why shouldn't it be that the things that I want to give to the world are the things that will also give me money? The things that I want to do in service to society and to the planet will generate money that supports me. Why shouldn't it be that way? Why should money be aligned with things that are not sacred to me? And that's where I get the title of Sacred Economics. It's about how to align money with the things that are becoming sacred to us, starting with the healing of the planet, the healing of society, um, so I think that everybody has probably had this kind of experience that, of, of that feeling like, I wasn't put here on earth to do this. Even if you're paid 10 million pounds a year, if your job was simply to sit there and type numbers, meaningless numbers, into a computer, you would eventually start having that feeling. No amount of money would be enough to quell that feeling. Because your gifts have to go, not only do your gifts have to be engaged, but they have to go towards something that's, that's meaningful to you. Or again, you're going to feel that, that you're not living your life. You know, this is a, a, quite a strange situation here. Um, looking out at a sea of strange faces. This uh, was unheard of in hunter-gatherer times or in medieval times, in the uh, Saxon period in England. Everybody you knew was, uh, was an intimate acquaintance. And everybody that you saw, you knew their stories and they knew your stories. And you knew that what you did, the way you acted, would come back to you. If you were very generous, then everybody would know that, and they would be generous to you, too. If you were very stingy or mean, uh, then the effects of that would come back to you as well. This is related to what I'm going to be talking about, um, the revolution. The revolution of the gift economy. And I'm using the word revolution here in a very deep sense. Um, I mentioned it before, this idea that everything is changing. And I want to explain what is so revolutionary about gift economy, or the spirit of the gift, or the cosmology of the gift. Um, it's something that is foreign to us today because we are so conditioned uh, to see the world as a competitive arena in which more for you is less, is less for me. In a gift culture, it wasn't like that. One of the features of the gift, of a gift culture, is that if you have more than you need, you, you're, you're not going to hoard it for yourself. You're going to give your excess to somebody else who needs it. And that's not just because you're a nice person. It's because that's where security, status, 
and everything that we call wealth comes from. Because if you give to the people generously in your community, then they're going to kind of owe you one. They're going to want to give to you as well. It's just like if you um, borrow, even if it's a small thing, you borrow even a corkscrew from, from your neighbor. I had to do that last year. I borrowed a corkscrew from my neighbor, okay? And I return it to him. And now he feels like he has kind of permission to ask me for a small favor too. A gift creates a bond between people, unlike a financial transaction. So if I, if, if I borrowed my, cork, my neighbor's corkscrew and I returned it to him and say, here's a dollar, uh, he would actually be insulted because I'm saying, I don't want this bond with you. I want the relationship to be over. So today we live in a society that's increasingly monetized. Therefore, we live in a society where there are no bonds. And that is the reason, or one reason, why we lack community today. Because community is simply a group of people who, among whom gifts circulate. And you know that if you give to somebody in the community, then the community will give back to you too. So in a gift culture, it's not true that more for you is less for me. We're not fundamentally in competition because if you have some good fortune, then your surplus will come to me. Maybe not directly, but you'll give to somebody who will give to somebody who will give to me. And if you have bad fortune, then you'll have less to give to me. So gift culture corresponds to a very different sense of ourselves, what it is to exist, what it is to be. It corresponds to a different way of looking at the universe. Money is not like that. And I'm going to explain why, I think. I think I'll move on to that. Um, money has to do with, the, okay, this explanation is going to also include the answer to the question, why is it that money is not aligned with the sacred today? Why is it that money is the ally of the things I don't want to do and the enemy of the things I do want to do? Generally speaking, I don't, I don't want to overgeneralize here. I mean, there are some people who do what they love and they're making lots of money at it and it's fine. Okay? This is, but I'm, I'm generally speaking, money is not aligned with what is sacred to us as individuals. And when you ask, when you investigate any, any big problem in the world, any, anything horrible happening, like why is, why is there a war in Afghanistan? Why maybe now in Iran soon? And why, why are we cutting down the rainforests? And you ask, why is this happening? And very soon you get to money. Money's making it happen. So it's obviously, if there's anything that's not sacred in this world, it's money. And that's a puzzle that it should be that way because money isn't a law of the universe. It doesn't exist outside of human creation. We've created money to be that way. Money is simply a story. It's a set of interpretations of symbols. And we have created, or it's a set of agreements, you could say it's a set of agreements that to use something as a medium of exchange and a store of value and a unit of account. So you could ask, why have we created a set of agreements? Why have we created this story that's driving the planet toward destruction. Why couldn't we create a different story? Well, we can create a different story. 
And in fact, we will create a different story because the money system as we have known it is falling apart. And the collapse of that money system, which even the elites recognize is happening when they talk about pretend and extend, the collapse of that money system is tied into the collapse of the larger agreements that include the agreement of money. So I'm going to, let me explain kind of how money works. Um, like, in ancient Greece, the city-state was the, was the one that could issue money. So how, is it, how does it work today? And a lot of people already know this story, um, but I'm going to go through it anyway in just five minutes or so. And if you are an economist, you might see many, many ways in which I'm oversimplifying it, um, not distinguishing between the monetary base and M1 and M2, or not talking about shadow banking systems and, and whatever. Okay. This is a really basic understanding of it that fundamentally won't lead you astray. Okay, so most people know that money today is created by lending. It's lent into existence by banks. So if, if I'm a bank and I lend you, say, a million pounds, I'm not really taking that money from someone else's savings account and putting it in yours. Uh, but what I'm doing is I'm creating new money by an accounting entry in your savings account. Okay? New money, a million pounds. Now there are a million more pounds in existence. Now, how do I decide who to do that for? Well, I'll do it if I think that you're going to be able to pay me back. Pay me back not just one million pounds, because there's interest on this loan. You have to pay me back, say, two million pounds over whatever, 10 years, whatever the interest rate is, okay? You have to pay me back more than I lent you. Well, that's not a problem, because you are such a, a great entrepreneurial, creative person, you're going to take that million pounds and you're going to make the world's best chocolate. And you're going to sell it to everybody else in the room. You're going to make three million pounds doing that. And pay me back my two million and you're going to get rich too. No problem. The first problem comes from the fact that everybody in the room is in the same boat. Because all money, not just some money, but all money is created through that process. So everybody in the room has a million pounds. Everybody in the room owes me two million pounds. Where's the extra money going to come from? Essentially, you are all in competition with each other for never enough money. And I don't know if that phrase rings a bell in your life. In competition for never enough money. So the way that money is created creates along with it scarcity, anxiety, and competition. Now, it wouldn't last very long if that were all to the story. Half of you would go bankrupt, and there would be a revolution very quickly. Um, but that's not all to the story. Because what happens when all, that, all those loans are due? Well, by then, you can all pay them back because I've created even more money in the interim. I've lent even more money into existence. 
And that comes with even more debt. But that's okay, because when that comes due, I will have lent even more money into existence. And all the while, how do I know who to lend it to? It's if you have a good business plan. If you're gonna create goods and services and sell them to other people, then I can keep lending money into existence and the system will keep working. No problem. The only problem with this, well, not the only problem, but the flagrant problem with this comes if there's a limit to growth. If there's a limit to growth, for example, maybe the planet can't accommodate more growth, then we've got a problem. Because now there's no one with a good, I'm exaggerating, there are not enough people with a good business plan for me to lend enough money to pay back all of the loans on the existing, from the existing money. There's not enough money and I stop, and, and I stop lending because there's no growth that's gonna create new business plans. And when I stop lending, then the debts keep rising faster than income, wealth concentrates into fewer and fewer hands, unemployment runs rampant, and you see everything that's happening today. And that's the nature of today's crisis. It's a crisis of growth. And that's why all the politicians are talking about, you know, reigniting economic growth. And that would solve the problem. But what is economic growth? What, what are these goods and services? And can they keep growing forever? Well, goods are essentially, okay, so it only counts as a good or a service if it's being exchanged for money, right? So if your business plan is, hey, Charles, uh, I would like a million pounds to there's a threatened wetlands out there. I'd like to buy that and protect it. Otherwise, it'll be threatened with development. And what do you mean that's not a good or a service? That's very valuable to society, but you're not gonna be selling anything. So that doesn't count. If your business plan is, you know, Charles, people have forgotten how to cook for themselves. They've lost this skill. And, and I'm gonna teach them how to do that again. And, and I'm not gonna charge them money for it. Or I'm gonna, I'm gonna, people don't take care of their own kids anymore, they're shipped off to daycare. I'm gonna create a neighborhood daycare co-op so that, that people can collectively take care of their own kids and they won't have to pay for daycare anymore. Okay, there's no money in any of these things. But if your business plan is, I'm gonna buy that wetlands, pave it over, uh, get the zoning changed because I have friends on city council. Uh, see, here's my Rolodex, here's my business plan, and I'm gonna make, okay, that's a business plan. I'm going to set up a daycare center so that people can pay for daycare instead of taking care of their own kids. That's a new service. I'm going to uh, build a supermarket with a deli in it so that people, because they're busy now, and, and they can they can pay for food preparation instead of preparing it for themselves. Okay, that's a new service. So what's happened is over centuries is that the realm, the non-monetary realm, which you could say is the realm of the gift, has shrunk and shrunk and shrunk and shrunk and the monetized realm has grown. 
So one aspect of that is that nature is converted into product. The other aspect is that relationships are converted into services. I mentioned a couple, like food and childcare, two of the biggest growth areas, food preparation and childcare. Uh, if you go back enough generations, you see other, other aspects of human relationship that have been converted into money. For example, um, entertainment. A hundred years ago, uh, because we didn't have the recording technology, well, 130 years ago, whatever, um, music wasn't something you usually paid for. Maybe rich people went to the opera or something like that, but most people sang songs and played instruments. Singing was, you heard singing all over the place, all the time. In America, uh, 100 years ago or 80 years ago, every small town had its own marching band and put on its own parade, and it was a really big deal, and everybody was into it. And so people, and it didn't cost money to do that. But today we pay for music. Um, we didn't used to pay for, for medical care. Every village had a couple herbalists. Maybe if things got really bad, you'd have to hire the doctor with his little black bag. Um, but people didn't usually pay for medical care. Um, people didn't pay for drinking water. Bottled water, that's a new thing too. So in case somebody is here with the, uh, maybe you kind of wandered into the wrong place and you thought this was going to be about uh, getting rich. Um, well, it is kind of about getting rich because the growth of all of these things has impoverished us in other ways. But I will offer you a business plan if you are here to get rich. And that's just to find something that people get for free from nature or from each other, take it away, and sell it back. So pollute the water, sell them bottled water. Um, De-skill people and sell them services. Um, scare them into not letting their kids run free, and then they can pay for video games and indoor activities. Almost anything can be converted into money. Play, for example. When I was a kid, I, we, we would wander off, after breakfast, we'd wander off, our parents didn't know where, and do all kinds of dangerous things, come back, and we had this, this kingdom of imagination. Uh, and so today, all, the, all these, you know, adventures we had, and today, closer? Today, we, uh, children purchase these adventures and have online virtual adventures that have kind of replaced the kingdom of the outdoors. Okay, so you get the picture here. Um, this conversion of life into money. Now, an economist might say that we're better off because of this. We're better off because it's more efficient for the supermarket deli to make a thousand meals than for everybody to make their own meals. More efficient for the daycare teachers to take care of 20 kids rather than for each family to take care of their own kids. It's more efficient for uh, whatever her name is to sing all of our songs for us. And, and the economists would say that's actually what we want because we're willing to pay for it. And we wouldn't pay for it if we didn't want it. But I think that we can 
we've noticed that we've only become richer in the ways that we can measure, and we've become poorer and poorer in the ways that we can't measure. Life has become impoverished in, in, in qualitative ways. So we have lots more food, but not as much food that's really prepared with love. We have lots more music, but it's all impersonal. We don't have as much music that's, that's actually sung to you. And if you've ever been serenaded by a lover, you know kind of what's missing. And we're, we're missing the, the, the personal and, and the authentic and the intimate, which makes us hungry for these things. And to meet this hunger, maybe we consume more and more and more of the stuff that we can count, of the stuff that's available. And I think that's what drives a lot of our consumerism. People think it's greed that drives this endless consumerism and this, this uh, urge to, to live in a bigger house and have a bigger bank account and, and all that. But I think it comes comes down to, to what I was talking about before. I mean, here we are in a room full of strangers. This is profoundly unnatural. Human beings evolved to look around and, and you knew everybody intimately and everybody knew your story and you knew the, the name of every hill and of every tree and it was an intimate friend of yours and you knew the stories, the mythological stories of these, of these every feature of the land and the story of when your best friend's little brother uh, fell through the ice uh, on that pond uh, and you knew this, the stories of, of your friend's children and their, your friend's parents and they knew you and so therefore you knew yourself. Every bird that you saw, you could see a bird, you'd know what its song was and what time of day it sang its song and what type of plants it used for its nest and the medicinal qualities of those plants and what kind of soil they grew in and so we were immersed in this connected realm and we felt at home in the universe. Today we are cut off from that and not only by our economic system. Because the economic system doesn't exist in isolation from everything else. It rests on a deeper foundation. And this deeper foundation is also falling apart today. I call it the story of the people. It's the defining myth of our culture. Every culture has one. Every culture has its own answer to the deep questions like, who are you? What's important in life? Where did we come from? Where are we going? What is a human being? What's valuable? What's real? The answer that we have, there's two aspects of it. There's the individual aspect, the story of self, and the collective aspect, which I could call the story of the people. And the individual aspect says basically that, that what a self is, it's this discrete, separate individual in a world of other discrete, separate individuals, and, and this world is external to you. 
every field of thought phrases this in a different way. So religion would say, yeah, you're this soul encased in flesh. And there's other souls out there, and then there's God up there. Uh, and so you're separate from the other souls, separate from God, and separate from materiality, separate from the world. Because what you really are is that soul, you're not the flesh. Okay, so there's separation right there. And I'm not talking about um, esoteric religion, okay? I'm talking about just what religion has been for most of us. Um, and science is the same. Biology, the separate self, is this flesh robot programmed by its genes to maximize reproductive self-interest. In physics, it's, again, a flesh machine operating according to deterministic laws in an objective universe, okay? All obsolete, obsolete physics, obsolete biology, but that's what, what it's been, been telling us. Psychology, you know, you're this kind of bubble of psychology bouncing around among other bubbles of psychology. Uh, you are a mind, you are a moat of consciousness, as Descartes described it. You're this little moat of consciousness, and so you're separate from other people, and of course, if there's me here, and you there, and the universe out there, then the more I control of that, the less there is for you. So our basic answer to who are you already encodes competition, scarcity, and anxiety. And our money system fits perfectly into that worldview. You may have noticed that that worldview is becoming obsolete. And we are, we are transitioning into a different story of self. And you could call it the connected self. The ecological self. It's the, the self that understands that every person out here is part of me, a reflection of me, a mirror of myself, part of myself, and same with the world. And we're not actually separate. All of us are undergoing a shift in consciousness of this nature, experiencing ourselves in different ways, still very much subject to the habits of the separate self, the habits of thought, the habits of being, but moving, shifting. Which means that the, the psychic foundation for the money institution and for all of our other institutions is gone. The ground underneath is shifting. That is one way to, to, to understand why there is a crisis in all of our institutions. They're all obsolete. They don't shift as fast in our consciousness, though. They have more inertia. They're, they're more solid. Um, and that's why we have this disconnect between our consciousness and our institutions. And that's why money is not aligned with the things that are becoming sacred to us, with the things that are beautiful to us. It's still built on the old story of self. And it tries to pull us back into that story of self. Another way to put it is that if what makes your heart sing is not to increase the number of products, to find something to sell, then there's not going to be a job for you. The money isn't in the things that you want to do, because the money system is aligned with separation. And there's another really important part, actually, 
It's also aligned with the story of the people on the collective level. And I call that one ascent, ascent, rising. Um, and this story basically says that, says, well, you know, once upon a time, human beings were these animals, helpless, naked, superstitious, ignorant, barely surviving, subject to the whims of nature at the mercy of natural forces. But thanks to our big brains, we began to ascend above nature. We developed science that replaced ignorant superstition. We developed technology that replaced impotent ritual. And slowly but surely, we became the lords and masters of nature. And look at what we've done. We have harnessed fossil fuels. First we harnessed the animals, then we harnessed fossil fuels. We can, we've changed the course of rivers. We've built, taken down mountains and built new ones and, and, and exceeded the speed of sound. And, and we can do things that no other animal can do. And that's just the beginning. Someday, maybe with nanotechnology, genetic engineering, atomic power. Well, that's a little bit, that was in the 40s. But this myth has been going on a long time, okay? I mean, it was, I mean, Descartes actually uh, wrote about that, and, and, and futurists were saying that in 1800, you know, they're saying, yes, we're becoming the masters of nature, and, and soon we will live in, in leisure and ease. It's been predicted again and again and again. Soon we will conquer all disease. That's what they were saying in the 50s. It seemed obvious then. And, and so the, the, the story says that someday our control over nature will be complete. It says someday we will conquer all disease. We will synthesize our food. We won't even need nature. We'll go off into space. We will maybe even conquer death by uploading our consciousness into computers. Our control will be complete. Gee whiz, what's next? Uh, and as you can tell, this story is also becoming obsolete. Mostly because it's not working very well. Like, I don't think many people still believe, as the experts were saying in the 50s, that we will conquer all disease by the year 2000. I don't think most people believe the top futurist of the 1980s, Alvin Toffler, who said, by the year 2000, the greatest problem facing society will be what to do with all our leisure time. And he predicted 150 days of vacation a year, 30-hour work weeks, you know, almost as good as hunter-gatherers enjoy, but not quite. And you know, the space colonies, those were supposed to be in place by the 90s. I remember when I was a kid. Remember, like, the rocket mania? I had, I had like, a rocket board game. I had, like, model rockets. Even my shampoo bottle was in the shape of a rocket, you know? And, like, you were naive if you thought that we wouldn't have space colonies by the year 2000. So we don't have an age of leisure. In fact, we're working harder than in 1973. We don't have the end of disease. We don't have 200-year lifespans. In fact, lifespans are beginning to decline in some places in America, for example. 
And our mastery of nature seems to have run into a few problems too, as it increasingly is running out of control. Clinging tightly to that story of ascent, we would say, well, the problem is that we just need some more technology, more control, more of the same. If what you're doing isn't working, do more of it, which is kind of crazy. Money is also part of this story of ascent because, because of, its, if, of its nature, because of, I explained how, how interest drives growth, it necessitates growth and it drives growth, um, because we're all under endless debt pressure, directly or indirectly, to find something else to bring into the human realm, into the realm of money and property. So it's part of this growth paradigm. And again, that story is becoming obsolete. And, and, and 100 years ago, it wasn't. You know, 100 years ago, if you were a bright young person, idealistic, a go-getter, you would be totally psyched to invent a faster way to cut down the trees. You wouldn't have to apologize for it. You wouldn't have to be ashamed of it. And everybody would celebrate you as a captain of industry because that story was still robust. But not anymore. Not anymore. What we're facing then is, this is the nature of the revolution. We're facing a transition in our world-defining myths, the defining myths of our civilization. I'll call them myths. Separation, myth. Ascent, myth. And I don't mean to denigrate them by calling them a myth, because we're going to replace them with new myths. But it's a profound change. What's the new story of the people then? And so really what, I, what my work is, is, is to describe what money would look like if it were aligned with the new story of the people and the new story of the self. And I know that it's going to have a lot to do with the gift because the gift, unlike money, expands the self to include all of our relationships. In a gift culture, as I pointed out, it's no longer true that more for you is less for me. It's no longer true that, that you are separate from me because now your good is also my good. So gift economics is aligned with the connected self, the new story of self. The connected self, it, it, it's something that, even if our minds can't quite grasp it, uh, it's something that we can feel, you know? Why else would it hurt to read, to see those pictures of, you know, after the Gulf oil spill and there's those seabirds, you know, staggering on the shore, soaked in oil? Like, why should that hurt? You know, so what, you know? In England, I mean, we don't get shrimp in England from the Gulf of Mexico, we get it from somewhere else, who cares, you know? Fukushima, you know, that's just some people in Japan. That radiation isn't gonna get over here, who cares? But it hurts us, because the fact is, the truth is that what happens to anybody and anything and, and to the planet is happening to us as well. And we can no longer escape that. We, in the, 
50 or 100 years ago, it seemed as though we could escape the consequences of our actions. It seemed as though that we were exceptions to ecology, where everything circles back, that we were separate from nature. But today, we can't escape it anymore. The, the circle of karma is getting tighter. So this is something that we can feel, something that we know, just like we know the truth of the gift that, that we're here to do something, that, that serves something greater than ourselves. We're here to give of our gifts. We know that. And for a long time, and this knowledge resides in the heart, and for a long time, it was in conflict with our logic and our, and, uh, and our systems. And this conflict is beginning to resolve now. And we're entering into a new logic in which it makes total sense. What we feel makes total sense. Because the story of separation is becoming obsolete. In physics, even, it's becoming obsolete. You know, it's no longer, no longer true that in physics that there's these discrete, separate entities in an objective universe. You know, the, the distinction between subject and object is becoming very questionable. In biology, it's changing, too. It's not these discrete, selfish genes. We're learning that, that, uh, that genetic material is routinely exchanged between organisms, even across species, that were expressions of a genetic plenum. 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 I don't know how to say that word. Um, anyway, that was supposed to make you think I was smart. <laughs> Got to throw a few big words in there. Um, to make up for my lack of credentials. I shouldn't have admitted that either. <laughs> okay, the new story of the people. What is the ascent over nature, the domination, the conquest of nature? What is, what's replacing that? What's replacing the growth paradigm? Thanks for listening to the Moot Community Podcast. If you'd like more information on who we are and what we do, please visit www.moot.uk.net.